there's a council in Melbourne that is considering banning outdoor barbecues as if this city soul hasn't been crushed enough. Did you see the Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, folks. It is episode 181. It is the 18th of August. And pretty big show coming up today. So, you know, last couple of weeks we've been very Victoria-focused. It's been what's on everyone's mind. This week we're going to be having a look over the seas at New Zealand, what's going on over there. We're going to be talking about WA as well. And for that, we've got Oliver Hartwich, direct, Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative. We're going to be talking to him about uh, the new Auckland lockdowns and the fact that they have delayed an election, which I think is an extraordinary move. We're also going to be talking to IPA Research Fellow Dara McDonald about all uh, the things going on in Western Australia between Clive Palmer and the state government, who've basically just said we don't need the rule of law anymore because we don't like Clive Palmer. Uh, we're also going to be looking at Queensland. They try to stop people reporting on corruption and a whole bunch of other things in the show. So, Pete, anything you're looking forward to? Oh, look, there's a few spooky things going on today, James. I think I'd just like to draw people's attention right at the top to the fact that governments all around Australasia are doing really, really crazy things that they wouldn't have even considered doing a few months ago based on the fact that they've got used to it and they like it. Mm. Well, there we go. So, but there is one story that I know you're quite fired up on about, uh, Pete, that happened over this week, and that was the Johannes Leak cartoon. That's right, the Johannes Lee cartoon. So now, a lot of people would have already seen this, but if you haven't, it is a cartoon, and I'm sure Saul's going to chuck it up on the big screen now for those watching. But if you're listening, it is of Joe Biden, and of course, he picked his running mate, Kamala Harris. Last week, he, the, the uh, cartoon featured in the Australian by Johannes Leake, son of Bill Leake, says, it's time to heal a nation divided by racism. And then in the next panel, it has Joe Biden. That was Joe Biden. Then in the next panel, it has Joe Biden saying again, so I'll hand you over to this little brown girl while I go for a lie down. Now... This, obviously, James, as you can imagine, caused a very large fuss, as these things tend to do. Uh, accusations of racism against Johannes Leake and the Australian newspaper. And anyone who reads the Australian newspaper, and anyone who's ever read the Australian newspaper... If is you've a seen racist. it in a newsstand, you are besmirched. You are part of this problem. What? Uh, and so that criticism came from journos, it came from Tim Soupomasani, it came from, obviously, a number of politicians. Uh, what... Well, I've got two takes on this, James, then we, can, then we can get to you. Firstly, it's just garden variety hypocrisy because Biden has said like lots of stuff that's a bit questionable, including these very words, which he tweeted out. Uh, earlier in the week, he said, uh, this morning, little girls woke up across the nation, especially black and brown girls who so often feel, uh, may feel overlooked and undervalued in our society. He goes on. Anyway, so it's using his very words. And secondly, clearly, more, so... There's the guard right hypocrisy, and of course Biden in the past has said if you vote for Trump, you're not black, which is incredibly racist, yet all these people still support him. Uh, and in addition to that, there is of course, James, the uh, the broader point, which is surely choosing someone on the basis of their skin colour and their gender, which Biden has done, is the bigger issue and far more racist and sexist than any cartoon. I uh, couldn't agree more, Pete. So yeah, the Joe Biden tweet that Hannah Leak was parroting was him tweeting, this morning, little girls woke up across the nation, especially black and brown girls, who so often may feel overlooked and undervalued in our society, potentially seeing themselves <laughs> in a new way as the stuff of presidents and vice presidents, which even by that own logic meant that the Barack Obama presidency did nothing for anybody. But the point being that if, if, what, if when Biden says it, that's fine, but when Johannes Leak says it, uh, that's racist... Like if, if words your friends say sound good, but your enemy saying they sound bad, perhaps you don't actually like those words, which is what I'd say about this one. If you, if you think it's racist when Johannes Leake says it, well, I'm sorry that it's also racist when Joe Biden says it. 
I don't think you can have it both ways. 100%. 100%. And and as I reckon, it's that warped thing. The thing about... uh, What is it? So the thing about this affirmative action, like it's really affirmative action because uh, he said, you know, I'm going to choose someone who's a woman of color, uh, is that it actually looks down on the people that you're meant to be helping as well. It's not just, you know, racist to other people who might be going for that job who are getting rejected because of the color of their skin. It's also a negative for the people who it's meant to be helping. Um, you know, it implies that they can't make it on merit. It's disempowering. It's saying you can't make it unless, you know, I help you, the world's out to get you. You know, to one group of people, we say you can do anything you pursue your dreams and you can go and achieve anything. And to another group, we say, not you, you need my help. Uh, so that's very disempowering. Anyway, uh, creates resentment. Um, yeah. So that's that's the broader point for me. As much as, you know, everyone's hypocritical in politics, that's great. But it's the broader point for me that really got my goat, I'd say. The one thing I like about this is that uh, Kevin Rudd has obviously weighed into the fact that News Corp needs to come down and he's complained as well, which means that at least what's come out of this is that Kevin Rudd has something to do. Yeah, that's right. It's good. Yeah, I think that's very important. We keep his mind occupied and keep him feeling productive because uh, we went, need to look out for him. He went through a passion. He went through. A, he had a week a few a couple of months ago where he said he'd had a good week. Is that right? Uh, fantastic news for him. But you know, I believe just, so. I just want Kevin Rudd still feeling like he's achieving things. So we're going to move on to another story here. So yeah. with the idea of national lockdowns again, and I'm going to come back to this: the phrase "we're all in this together." continues to show absolutely no meaning to anyone. But the federal government is blocking three out of four applications for Australians to leave the country when the borders are closed amid concerns they could spread coronavirus when they return home. So the stat here, the Australian Border Force uh, has granted permission for 22,640 citizens and permanent residences, uh, residents to depart Australia from March 25 to July 31 out of 91,950. So 22,000 approximately out of 91,000 have been allowed to leave Australia. Now, this idea that Australia is turning into just one big, you know, stay-at-home prison, kind of reinforced when it's the idea that, no, you, we literally are stopping you from leaving. You don't have a good enough excuse. That's right. This is crook as. Like, there's... There's no reason, I get that they don't want to let people in because, you know, they might spread coronavirus, blah, blah, blah. But stopping people leaving? Like, yeah. that's creepy as. I mean, that's that's what North Korea and places like that do. I mean, and it's not for stuff like people want to go to Bali. It's people want to... I saw one of my mates the other day, uh, his mum wanted to come and uh, help them because they were having kids. They were having their first child and the mum couldn't come. People going to weddings and things like that. You know... You've got to be able to leave. That's the that's the deal. You've got to be able to... If you don't like your institutional arrangements, you should be able to leave. And, you know, we've all thought about it. I don't want to live in Melbourne for the next two years if it's going to be like this. Does that and the mean idea I that can't you're, go yeah, anywhere? I, believe me, I'd, I'd leave for anywhere. But, uh, like, um, the idea is also, okay, we want to keep people safe from spreading coronavirus when they return home. Now, I thought that's why we had the hotel quarantine set up. So oh. why should someone be stopped from leaving if they can come home and spend two weeks in a hotel quarantine? Yeah, no, exactly right. If it, if they want to come back, then it's perfectly fine for the government to say, okay, well, you've been overseas, you're going to have to do X, Y, Z, that's fine. But stopping people from leaving, Dave Sharma, mate of the show, uh, said there's no other country that I'm aware of that is imposing an exit permit system like we've got in Australia. So it's not like other countries are doing it, uh, according to our mate Dave Sharma. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fundamental right of a free country to be able to opt out. Yeah. And the other so, idea that I want to come back to is the idea that we're all in this together. Now, Pete, I'm going to have to have a go at one of your um, sacred cows here. But the fact that Shane Warne <laughs> can fly over to the UK to commentate cricket, but some people are stopped from seeing the birth of their children or from attending their children's weddings, 
that to me is a bit, well, if you know a guy. Well, exactly. And I don't mind you having a go at Shane Warne on this one, James, because he's in the UK at the moment. I don't know when he went there, though. Has he, has he been there for... How long I, he been unless there? he's been there for five months, I think this kind of falls in the preview of this issue. Yeah. Which well, is extraordinary no, forward planning. If Shane Warne went ahead five months going, <laughs> this is how long the lockdown is going to be. Right, he, and I would have liked Shane Warne to bring that expertise and forward thinking to the National Cabinet rather than the Channel 9 cricket commentary team. Yeah, he could have told us what was going to happen. But no, you're exactly right. How do they choose the 22,000 out of 90,000? Oh, if you're Warnie and you want to talk about how Pakistan are losing once again, uh, then I'm pretty bitter on touring teams at the Poms at the moment because, as, as you know, we've had nothing on. So I've been watching a lot of English cricket with Warnie, barracking for the touring team. West Indies and Pakistan both let me down. In case anyone was wondering about that. I'll, I'll update the record. <laughs> so we'll put no, that in show notes. Uh, we'll address this next week. We'll... Um... We'll have a round table. We'll, we'll there, get a that's few the promo. Forward. Yeah. That's the uh, promo, Dad. All right. So I'll move on to another story here. So this one, can I leave this be? Because this one is just something I am absolutely oh, yeah. incredulous about. So yeah, no, you go for it, mate. the Queensland government literally tried to stop people from reporting on corruption. Like that's where we're at right now. Specifically during an election. Specifically during an election. So they proposed this uh, bill... 24 hours, uh, they dished it 24 hours later, but they propose a bill that uh, would s- journalists would have had to face six months of jail or a fine if they reported on corruption allegations made to the Crime and Corruption Commission during election periods. Now, I would think that is the number one time to report those kind of things, but Queensland mm. government say, okay, you can't do it because uh, that would be mean. Well, this is what, I'm talk- this is what I talked about at the top of the show, James. This every government has got a taste of doing stuff they'd never dream of doing and now they can't stop. And the thing about this was, so they did it and then 24 hours later they backflipped and said, oh no, we're not going to do it. Like th- the normal processes of discussing the pros and cons of certain stuff is just out the window. People are just going rogue, writing up laws, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I like the idea control. that it was also like, oh, we thought you guys would like it. Oh, if you hate it, we'll get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, didn't see that coming. It's but also, in the back down... I- in the back down, sorry, Pal- uh, Premier Palajay in the back down says that it was a recommendation from the Crime and Corruption Commission. This was not a government <laughs> recommendation. It was a recommendation that came from the Crime and Con- uh, Corruption Commission. So, like, oh, that makes it so much better. Like, oh, I thought, you know, uh, she knows which one is the democratically elected body, right? She knows yeah. which one that the Queensland, gov- Queensland people have trusted to make these decisions for them. It's like, well, I didn't want to make sure that crime was, uh, corruption reporting was a crime. But, you know, this other body, they really made a good point And uh, mm. I just wasn't paying enough attention. Like, that seems an extraordinary excuse. They forced me. They, so that I don't know. I would like to talk to one of our very uh, learned research fellows about what exact role that Crime and Corruption Commission plays because it feels like it's a bit of a in itself might be a bit of a political stunt to have this crime and corruption commission, but then for them to complain that they get an upswing in uh, applications to the crime and corruption commission during election times, because of course both sides are trying to smear each other and a very small number of those actually end up being true or whatever, uh, is like, oh, we don't want to we don't want to do work. We just want to earn our money. Um, what was my other thing about this? Oh yeah, so this is the, this is the government that bans school to send a message. Let's not forget mm. that in Queensland yeah. they ban primary school and then the health the top health bureaucrat let it slip that it's because we wanted to send a message. So they've got form on wacky stuff uh, and at least they didn't do it. <laughs> so one positive. Find the positives. 
All right, now we're going to be talking about Western Australia with Dara later in the show, but we just want to bring it up up top just so we all know what's going on. So, Pete, what is going on? Well, Terry McCrandy, the Oz, called this the most outrageous abuse of power we have seen from any government in Australia in the past in 120 years since Federation, or five minutes ago when Daniel Andrews put us all under house arrest. But um, this fits in with my whole theme of everything, every government in Australia just going nuts. What they did was so... Uh, Clive Palmer and the Western Australian government are in a legal battle over a mine which has been going since 2012 uh, and it, it sort of became apparent that Palmer was going to win and that the, the, the figure bandied around is that the oh, my computer's just updating that's great uh, the figure bandied around was that uh, the, the Western Australian government was going to owe Palmer north of $30 billion which is their annual budget so it's going to be a fair blow to Western Australia so what they did was they put through a piece of legislation with bipartisan support I might add which means that Palmer and his company can't make any claims under the legislation. Agents of the government are given legal immunity and it's retrospectively dated, James, which is very convenient for the Western Australian government, uh, which means that effectively Palmer can't rinse the Western Australian government. Uh, Now, obviously, he's going to take this to the High Court, but yeah, that's what happened. I don't want to get into too much into it because we talked to Dara about it, but uh, insane. Yeah, it does seem like the uh, political equivalent of, yeah, well, my dad can beat up your dad. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, just because you think you're entitled to money, we're now going to make it illegal for you to ask. Yeah, <laughs> specifically you. Specifically uh, Clive Palmer. Because he's not normal. We get into that in the interview, but yeah, yeah, because he's not normal. And and it was done after, you know, business hours had finished over in the East, which is, I feel like, a bit of a Western Australian thing. You know, I've heard rumours that, like, Friday afternoon in corporate Western Australia is pretty awesome because all the head offices in Sydney have closed. So, you know, head down to the cot. Is that a pub? No, it's a beach, isn't it? Head down to the Subi Hotel. Anyway. That's uh, for people Australia only listening, Peter's eyes have completely dilated at the thought of clocking <laughs> off early in a foreign land, hypothetically, for beers. Oh, and Western Strike, looking over the Indian Ocean, I mean, that is nothing better. I would, yeah, I wouldn't mind getting involved in that on, on some stage. I think we've got sidetracked here, but like the last thing a I want to bring yeah, up... With, a little bit was, sidetracked. Yeah, the last thing I want to bring up with this one is like this is a this is some highlighted text from the bill that is being put together in Western Australia, and this is extraordinary stuff. The rules known as the rules of natural justice in brackets, including any duty of procedural fairness in brackets, do not apply to or in relation to any conduct of the state that is or is connected with a disputed manner. So, like the concept of natural justice, meh. I like that they're very specific about it. Like, they've literally got it in words like, oh, yeah, no, we don't care. It's not like they've got it. We know this is not cool, but we don't care. Yeah. Yeah, we're specifically, specifically, like, so we're going to do the whole thing. And then in addition to that, rule of law no longer counts, just in case you missed that. Yeah. Uh, So, pretty amazing stuff. Dara Uh, knows. As we get into into with Dara, I mean, you don't have to love Clive Barmer to get up in arms about this. If you're any other business in Western Australia, you'd be like, wait, so if we get into a serious enough issue with the government, that's yeah. what they that's that's their like uh, you know, two keys in the ignition box breaking case of emergency plan is to destroy yeah. the natural justice and make us illegal make it illegal for us to go to the court. Yeah. Oh, that's the thing, like Clive Palmer's rich and it probably doesn't matter that much to him, although $30 billion in anyone's language is a fair bit, but it's the other businesses and the la- and businesses coming from overseas as well who would lack the confidence of investing in w- WI. 
All right, we're going to keep moving because we've got a lot to get through and it's a long show. So over in New Zealand, again, we're going to be talking about this with Oliver Hartwich later in the show. But New Zealand on Monday said it was going to postpone its national election by four weeks to October 17 as new coronavirus cases are found in Auckland. And uh, yeah, the country that once was the envy of the world for eliminating coronavirus, apparently you can't eliminate a virus. So that is now back in the community and it's just a big warning to the rest of the world. Elimination strategies only sometimes work and only temporarily work. Yeah, it's like if New Zealand can't do it, who's got a chance of doing it? They're so isolated, no offence, and they're not that uh, densely populated. You know, I think there's only the same amount of people as there is in Melbourne in New Zealand. Uh, and it's like you're just going to be in and out of this stuff until the vaccine comes, which may never come. So, yeah... Um, not a good week for those who think elimination is a good thing, in my view. Yeah, and then suspending an election just because Auckland is in lockdown. I mean, we get into this a little bit with Oliver Hart, which probably not as much as I would have liked. But anyway, um, the fact is that the point being that they they say they're saying, okay, we can't do an election because it wouldn't be fair because the opposition can't get in front of cameras because we're uh, putting policies out. But... Social media exists. The opposition is still consulted in Australia, probably not as much as it should be. But, like, I don't know. The idea that, okay, just because this is a crisis, you're stuck with me, maybe even if you don't think that I'm doing the best job as a leader, sorry, it's just too much of a risk. I I think that's a very important time to have an election. Could you imagine if Trump in America was just like, oh, you know what, we're just going to do it next year because it's just a bit tricky at the moment? (laughs) Well, he did. Like, there'd be riots in the street. He suggested delaying it and everyone went nuts and then Jacinda Ardern said, oh, yeah, we're delaying it. And everyone's like, good move. Seem, seems like <laughs> the right way to keep people safe. Yeah, so no, there's definitely that um, that double standard. And we, of course, get into with Oliver a few of the, the different treatments that Jacinda, gets, Jacinda Ardern gets from the media, which is a very interesting part of the interview. All right, sweet. Let's move on to heroes and villains. This is a Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort for people. Oh, sorry. I would like to raise something before we get on to heroes and villains. Okay. And, and that is that to listeners of the Young IPA podcast, your boy James Bolt uh, was published in Spiked. Heroes and villains. Heroes today, and villains. Today, I believe. Now, Spiked, of course, you, we talk about Spiked all the time. You'll know what it is, but it's a, the, the online magazine edited by the great Brendan O'Neill. James Bolt in it this week. I'm a bit jealous, to be honest. Uh, now, what was it called? It was called Melbourne Slide into COVID Dystopia. It was very, it was, it was Hemingway in parts, to be honest. My favourite bit: politicians and tens of thousands of public servants in Victoria have seen their pay increase, but we're all in this together. The elites stay in their jobs and lecture the rest of us on how to balance public p- policy priorities. And the final bit of the article, and you've got to check it out, the final bit of the article describes a woman talking on a mobile phone without her mask, and it sounded like, and I don't know who wrote it. When that bloke or woman, can't remember who it is, described the lights going off across Europe just before World War One, it sent a shiver down my spine. Check it out. Here is villains this week. <laughs> do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, I know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't, who am I talking I, about? I don't do well with compliments. I'm, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> if you could frame it as an insult, I'd know much better how to work with it. Who is the who is the person I'm I can, talking about? I can't remember, but Mark Stein used it in a book, and uh, yeah. I don't know. There's a Bunch of people just furiously pounding the wheels of their car right now and trying to get us to say the name. But uh, apologies. And uh, here is villains this week. This is a Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort uh, for people that have stood up for liberty around the world. Pete, who is your hero of the week? So that was British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey. Just Google it. The internet's an amazing thing. Is that your hero? <laughs> no, that was 
Uh, well, he's one of my heroes, but my actual hero this week is Nick Cave. Now, we tried to get Nick Cave on the program. Difficult to get hold of him uh, because he's a world-famous rock star. Anyway, he had a piece on his website during the week about cancel culture. We've talked about his attitudes towards cancel culture before, where he's been critical of it on his website. He's done it again. He wrote, and it's obviously, he's a beautiful artist, right? Like he, It was a beautifully written piece. You know, me and James sort of rabbit on about cancel culture, but Nick Cave does it with a bit more uh, panache. Anyway, he said, as far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. It now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of the beauty. It has become quite literally bad religion run amok. Now, he talks about, obviously, creativity needing mercy and needing room to breathe. The, you know, the, the idea that you can be forgiven for making mistakes has gone out the window. Uh, it's good to see an artist, James, actually blow up a few of society's sacred cows because that's what artists are for, after all. Uh, and we seem to have lost that idea. A lot of artists want to... Uh, do that thing that you talk about with comedians getting applause instead of laughs. What's that called? Yeah, again? clap. Clap is the uh, phrase. Right. Yeah, Nick Cave's been good on this for a while. He's done like mm. this. Isn't the first time we brought up the fact that he's not a big fan of cancel culture, which is always good to see. Yeah, and for yep. like a rock star that has lived his life sort of on that, you know, he doesn't mind pushing a few boundaries. He doesn't mind looking like the uh, the beatnik punk. Like, I, I didn't think he would be a big fan of cancel culture, so it's good to see him publicly come out against it. And he also, another final point, which he made, which he thought was good, he said he talks about the origins of political correctness, which I think is a good point because people forget that political correctness started out as being, don't be racist. Don't call people, you know, racial slurs. And that was a good thing. And now it's gone into treat people differently according to their race instead of don't treat people differently uh, according to their race. Anyway, there you go. Uh, great stuff. Fan of Nick Cave, James? Or- uh, definitely fan of Red Right Hand because I do like Peaky Blinders. <laughs> That song is like, feels like it's been written for Peaky Blinders. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, you ever walk down to the street late at night listening to that song on your headphones? Great experience. Uh, you feel very cool. <laughs> you feel like, what's that guy's name? Arthur Shelby. Thomas Shelby. Anyway, go on. Your turn. All right. Uh, my one this week. So, similar to Nick Cave in Someone Standing Up for Cancer Culture, but this is like the cancer culture in that, okay, you'd actually go to prison for it. So, something that I think we've talked about on the show before so scotland's got this new hate speech law which would make it illegal for people to stir up hatred against someone else but they don't even need to prove intent so some of the stories that have come out is that if a play was sufficiently uh if someone felt victimized by a play they were watching the actors in the play could be uh found guilty under this law so this week, over 20 individuals and organizations from the world of arts, journalism, literature, comedy, all that, signed an open letter just saying, we need to get rid of this law. This is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you know, hate speech laws at the best of times are uh, questionable with stuff that would actually criminalize actors performing in a play. I mean, come on. And one of them was Rowan Atkinson. So Rowan Atkinson's my hero of the week. I mean, hopefully by now you would have seen Rowan Atkinson's famous speech standing up for free speech uh, mm. uh, against like the... I can't remember which law it was, but Google Roland Atkinson free speech. It's this awesome, awesome 12-minute speech about just how important free speech is, how important it is that artists be allowed to say whatever they want to critique society. And yeah, it's just cool to see another, you know, one of uh, an industry overtaken by political correctness stand up against some of the worst parts of that. Fantastic. That's all we asked for. Now, who, any other famous people on that list, James? None that I recognize, to be honest. It seemed very like... The British playwright scene, which, you know, living in Melbourne, I'm not entirely across, but it was good to see Rowan Atkinson there. I would love to get asked to sign an open letter. That, that's when you know you've made it. Uh, 
Not like a not like a um, you know a petition on the street. Like I mean, a proper open letter where the, your name gives it extra gravitas. That's the aim for us, James. Your, <laughs> uh, break your article the, at is going to help. Yeah, just break into Washington DC and sign the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, well, Saul, write that down. All right, John now. Hancock, Thomas Jefferson, Peter Gregory, the roof seal. <laughs> well, I do agree with it. Anyway, villains. Extinction Rebellion, fate, nerdy run, roll the tape, Saul. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. That is the fake nerdy run, so we give anyone uh, who is a villain and fighting against the cause of freedom, we call them the Extinction Rebellion, fake nerdy run. Uh, award, James, who's your villain this week? Uh, this one's been going on for a while, but I've only just seen it. But it's this, like, they're actually trying to bring back segregation in the UK. It's incredible. Cool. It's this thing called Free Black University, which is this uh, initiative. It's a Kickstarter. It's got £107,000 on their Kickstarter at the moment, or their GoFundMe. GoFundMe, sorry. But it's the idea that they're going to create a university solely for black people, which I think was what they were trying to do in Alabama in the 1960s. But the fact that it's come back in vogue is like, hang on, are we seeing what we're doing here? Is this really the way we want to go? Well, what's premises? Are we happy? Exactly. So you mentioned James. This is a Kickstarter. It's not government funded yet. Is that right? No, it's not. It's the GoFundMe has one hundred and seven thousand pounds. Like it's not government okay. funded yet. But the fact that it even exists and is that popular, like again, the ideas that were prevalent with George Wallace all those years ago. These firebrand racists. They're back in vogue in the British in Britain. Yeah, no, terrible stuff. And it, it, you would hope that eventually, you know, because some t- some politician will say that and go, "Oh, that's a good idea," and um try and kick some money in. So it's good that that hasn't happened yet, but uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, have you got any more on that, James? No, that's it. Let's hear your one. Well, this is this is vastly worse, James, than segregation, and that is that the Melbourne there's a council in Melbourne that is considering banning outdoor barbecues as if this city's soul hasn't been crushed enough. The Bayside Council has put out a survey on changes. So they what they do is they put out this thing, right, where here's like seven or eight ideas that we've got Tell us if you like one. And the reason they put out banning outdoor barbecues. Banning outdoor barbecues. Hang on, let me get this exactly right. A ban on the burning of solid fuel, e.g. wood and charcoal, for outdoor cooking or heating due to offensive emissions. So this is if other people could smell your barbecue and the smell isn't nice, which a barbecue usually is. Uh, then that Always is. The one thing that isn't. doesn't smell good when it's being barbecued. Oh, just if it's, I mean, if it's set on fire and it's starting to smell like smoke. But yeah, no, I, I, I take your point in general. But the Bayside City Council are considering banning it because, so they put out these eight ideas. Now, this idea, James, has received, they got a, a petition for it in 2018. Do you know how many signatures it had? Uh, to ban barbecues? Yep. Four. It had five. Oh, Very close. It, so it had close. Five. And they say well, they that's, received. Well, that's a good cross section of the community. Oh, that's a democratic rule I know, of the people. I know the exact kind of people that would be signing that, and it's the kind of people that hassle us down at the cricket club about getting our liquor license, and it drives me insane. Anyway, so there's that, and they receive a whopping three complaints a year about these barbecues, James. And I thought that the bloke from the council would pour cold water on it and say, we're not going to do it, don't worry. You know, this is just part of the democratic process. But no, City Council's Mayor Clark Martin said he knew the suggested change to backyard barbecues would be divisive. It is, Clark. Clark, uh, for someone who is having a romantic evening by the fire, it's beautiful for them. <laughs> Don't be creepy, Clark. But if the smoke is coming across and affecting 20 units down the road, then it's a problem. Yeah, it's like, Clark, we were discussing barbecues over here. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> let's, like, keep, I- <laughs> let's keep us looking down the straight and narrow, all right? 
Not many barbecues are romantic. Normally they're sort of, you know, with mates have a, you know, settle down, Clark. But, you know, as if, as if this, you know, let's make sure no one anywhere experiences any joy in this city ever again because that would be a tragedy. We better ban barbecues. Clark Martin, get your hand off it. This is rubbish. Feel another week. Uh, I have nothing more possibly to add to that. All right, that is it for the start of the show. We'll now go to our interviews with Oliver Hartwich and Dara McDonald. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show, Oliver Hartwich from the New Zealand Initiative. Oliver, welcome back. Hi, good to be with you. Uh, Oliver, Auckland has moved to another lockdown uh, after about 30, up to 50 cases now, uh, months after the last coronavirus community transmission case. Now, what is the mood in New Zealand about this all? Well, we're obviously very disappointed uh, because we thought we had the virus under control, uh, but now it's back and Auckland is in lockdown level three, not quite as extreme as the lockdown we had initially, but our level three is still very strict. And of course, for the rest of the country, level two is also um, a minor infringement on our normal movements. So the virus is back and it really disappoints a lot of New Zealanders who would really perhaps naively believe that we could get this under control. So Oliver, what does this show about elimination strategies? Because New Zealand is held up as an example over here in Australia as a place where elimination worked. And if we had done what New Zealand did, we'd be right. Now, does this show now, allegedly this, they think it might have come from trade with Melbourne. Does that mean that the only way to truly eliminate the virus is banning global trade? No, I don't think so. I mean, it depends on who you ask. There are still enough people in New Zealand, including some in our office here at the New Zealand Initiative, who believe that elimination, at least temporarily, is possible. Provided, of course, that you um, protect the borders properly, because actually I don't think it came through goods imports. It probably came somehow through um, our normal quarantine system. Um, However, I think um, more long term, it is very unlikely that New Zealand will be able to continue its elimination strategy because um, it, will take for, it will take too long until the rest of the world has actually moved to a stage where we think we could safely interact with them again. So I think this elimination strategy at some stage in the future will be questioned, even in New Zealand. It does strike me that any elimination strategy is just tied to whether or not we get a uh, vaccine. And I just wonder, like, you say you've got some staff members who believe an elimination is possible, but surely even with an elimination policy, New Zealand is just completely on its own from the rest of the world, from uh, travel and all these trade restrictions, uh, just until a vaccine exists. That's right. Um, actually, I think elimination strategy, that, that might be possible if we were able to manage our borders properly, but I don't really trust the government uh, to do that well because we have actually seen too many blunders at the border in the last few months. I don't think our um, government is capable of doing that. The other thing is, um, even if the government were perfectly capable of running the border, uh, which it isn't, uh, there would still be a pos- pos- uh, possibility for human errors. So the virus might still come into New Zealand, and then what do we do then? Should we lock down each time we have a few cases somewhere in Auckland? I don't think that's practical. And finally, the virus and the vaccine, well, I just heard today that um, some researchers believe that if we are very lucky, we might get a vaccine in the next four years, not this year, not next, in four years. I don't think New Zealand can actually cut itself off from the world for four years, pursuing an elimination strategy, which it can't really manage um, only to get the virus in 2023 or 2024. I don't think it's going to work that way. 
So, Oliver, you're uh, obviously clearly a bit sceptical of the elimination policy um, of the New Zealand government. What should the New Zealand government be doing, do you think, and what, and what should other governments like Australia be doing, in your opinion? Well, I think it is inevitable at some stage that we will have to learn to live with the virus, uh, both in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, and I don't say that lightly. I don't really want to live with the virus. It's actually much nicer without. But um, if the rest of the world doesn't get the virus situation under control, and if at some stage we want to interact with the rest of the world again, we will probably have to live with it. The other thing I say which encourages me a bit is the Swedish experience, of course, because um, maybe we underestimated the level of immunity already present in the population before we encountered coronavirus. So um, what we are now seeing is, of course, um, the importance of T cells, so a, a quiet level of immunity to the novel coronavirus from previous infections with other coronaviruses. And therefore, there might be a chance, as we can see in Sweden, that we reach herd immunity a lot faster than we previously thought. If that's the case, the rest of the world will probably get to the, towards this herd immunity sometime over the next year or so. And then it would probably be a good time for New Zealand also to question its own elimination strategy, except at that time, New Zealand will probably go through the kinds of infection waves that Europe and North America are currently going through. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, it, it all comes because for so long, New Zealand has been seen as the best way to handle coronavirus. I mean, it was the envy of the world. It was internationally renowned that New Zealand was the only country in the world to completely... Um, cut itself off from coronavirus and keep its citizens safe. And then this happens. So uh, one of the claims that I want to highlight is that uh, on 10th of the August, so this time last week, uh, the ABC News here in Australia tweeted, New Zealand has stamped out coronavirus. So what sets it apart from the rest of the world? So Oliver, what does separate New Zealand from the rest of the world? Well, I think the one thing that um, New Zealand and the New Zealand government did well was communications. Uh, the PR strategy of our government was world-class. The way that uh, the Prime Minister actually led New Zealand through the crisis, whether you agree with her strategy or not, it was just fantastically done and the approval ratings actually demonstrate how well she did that job. Even if you don't agree with the strategy, it is hard not to be impressed by the way that she handles these press conferences, our Prime Minister. Um, apart from that, apart from PR strategy, which, I, as I say, was world class, the strategy and the execution were definitely lacking. Um, the government has not been um, at all good when it comes to execution. They um, were also less than forthcoming with the truth when it comes to the availability of PPE, test kits and, and the like, or even flu vaccinations. So I think anything that had to do with strategy, the government actually didn't show great acumen there. And anything to do with implementation and execution of that strategy, um, we saw a lot of mistakes being made there as well. So the only thing I think that the rest of the world can probably learn from this government is communications and PR. That's interesting because uh, we'll, we'll talk more about Jacinda Ardern in a minute, but the uh, communication is important because over here in Victoria, where we're located, you know, it was all about flatten the curve and, it, and even in the rest of Australia, it was about flatten the curve. Now, it's not clear what the actual policy is, if it's about flattening the curve or if it's about elimination. So, And that's a big thing for people to just not be told what the strategy is, to be sitting in lockdown and not know what's going on. So credit to Jacinda Ardern for actually giving her policy a name and communicating it to the New Zealand people but now. I, but actually on that, um, initially, of course, our government wanted to flatten the curve as well. 
if you go back to the newspaper archives in mid-March, you can see that um, our government actually said we want to just avoid um, the overwhelming of our hospital system and they want to flatten the curve, suppress it enough so that New Zealand could live with it. And then over the space of just about five days, the government changed tune several times until they got themselves into elimination mode. That was um, almost a fluke. It wasn't really what the government had initially planned. Well, there you go. So let's move on to the economy of New Zealand because that's a, an issue that your uh, organisation, the New Zealand Initiative, talks about a lot. What is it? What are the challenges for the New, for New Zealand economically, and what kind of policies would you see looking? Do you see looking forward to help New Zealand recover from the uh, from this thing? Well, it is obviously very difficult for New Zealand to survive on its own, cut off from the rest of the world, especially since we had uh, two industries before COVID nineteen. Uh, which generated a lot of income for us. And one of them was international students, both secondary and tertiary students, spending time in New Zealand and studying at uh, New Zealand's um, secondary schools and universities. So uh, that sector is uh, basically gone. And the other uh, big sector for New Zealand, of course, is tourism. And we have a lot of international tourism, not just domestic tourism. And um, until we get that back, uh, there will be a massive hole in the New Zealand economy and we will struggle. So it is important for us to reopen the borders at some stage. Uh, another thing that's coming out in New Zealand this week is that Jacinta Ardern has uh, delayed the election by four weeks. Now, I think this is an extraordinary move. I can't believe democracy is treated like a health hazard. I would have taken any uh, measure possible to make sure that an election was held on the day that it was agreed an election would be held. So uh, how, how is this... How is this justified? Because only Auckland seems to be in the tough lockdowns. As you say, there's still uh, stage two in the rest of New Zealand, but Auckland, the one city with stage three, how do you get to delay an election off that? I think it was absolutely the right call to delay the election. And actually, if you asked me, I would have probably delayed it even more. Um, I understand the concerns about democracy, but the problem is actually you can't have a properly democratic election if you can't campaign. The government is currently occupying the airwaves. The government has daily press conferences, sometimes several times a day. So you constantly see the prime minister, the minister of finance, the health minister on TV explaining their policies. You don't see anything of the opposition and they can't even campaign anymore. So you can't have a free and fair election in these circumstances. And so delaying the election was the only right and responsible thing to do, especially if you care for democracy. Actually, I would have delayed the elections even further because um, seriously, the election now has made it so much more difficult to come to reasonable policy decisions now because we were constantly looking at the election date and every really important decision, for example, on how to safely reopen the border was basically made impossible by having this election date um, hanging in front of us. So I think now moving the election just a month to October probably makes matters a little bit worse for that because there's still a short-term election effect and nothing gets done until then. It would have been a lot better had we shifted the election to some time in late 2021 because at least it would have given us some breathing space to do some sensible policies, even if they were not popular, which we can't do now. So in a way, this is a half-hearted solution, but um, I agree at least uh, that it makes sense to delay the election while the parties can't campaign. How are the polls going over there, Oliver? Do we, does Jacinda Ardern likely to get re-elected? Will this outbreak and the delay of the election uh, have a negative impact for her? Well, we'll see. The last opinion polls we had were, of course, before the new Auckland lockdown. We had Labour up to 60.9% in the polls. And um, even in the latest poll, it was still well into the 50s. So 
according to the last opinion polls, we had Labour could govern on its own, which is remarkable given that we are operating in a um, mixed member proportional environment, so MMP electoral system, which typically leads to coalition governments. Um, whether this new lockdown will actually hurt Jacinda Ardern, it's too early to tell. The funny thing is, even though this was probably due to a border blunder and a quarantine blunder, Jacinda is still handling the PR so well um, that she is able to convince the public that she's doing all the right things for the country. And again, in crises, um, we see the population gather behind their leaders, and that's exactly the same effect we're seeing again today. Uh, one thing that might be helping her PR, at least here in Australia, is the fact that every single member of the media seems to be absolutely in love with her. So uh, is this also something that happens in New Zealand? Is there just a great groundswell from the journalists uh, that she's, she's just the best world leader in the world? Yes, um, we're getting a lot of these stories. Um, and each time a story like this appears in the international media, of course, that gets reported here. So sometimes you wonder whether these stories about Jacinda Ardern being published, say, in the New York Times or in the British press actually get read over there or more over right here, because New Zealand is like nothing more than international recognition. And uh, every time the Prime Minister gets a, a glowing story elsewhere, you can be sure this will be discussed and reported here. So yes, she has a remarkably um, stellar image um, overseas, but certainly also in New Zealand. Yeah, it's definitely something that makes us a little bit depressed. You know, we see Donald Trump says we're going to delay the election and, you know, it's the end of democracy and we have to storm the barricades. Jacinda Ardern does it and it's like, yeah, good move. Uh, and, you know, we saw things like her banning foreigners from buying property in New Zealand. That would be a huge issue if, you know, a conservative leader did that. But when Jacinda Ardern does it, um, it's fine. Now, how would you rate her performance overall? Would you say that she's been a good leader, bad leader? What are your, uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, it's a mixed picture. Um, she does crisis uh, very well. So um, she handled the Canterbury terror attacks extremely well. She found the right words. She brought the nation together. Um, she did uh, the um, White Island volcano eruption very well, another national disaster. And now she is um, a master when it comes to communicating her measures in COVID, whether you agree with them or not. So in crisis mode, Jacinda Ardern, well, you can't beat her there. Everything else her government has touched actually didn't work. So she promised uh, to build 100,000 new homes um, and gave up on that program and it became clear that it was unworkable. She promised to build a light rail line from um, Auckland Airport to the CBD. Um, I think that was the wrong call anyway, but um, she gave up after three years because that uh, scheme didn't work either. She promised to reduce uh, child uh, poverty in New Zealand. She actually made herself the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction didn't work, the uh, relevant indicators actually going up. So basically every area of policy that she touched, apart from these crises, um, hasn't really worked. So if it had just been on her record as a manager of ordinary government business, I think the opposition would stand a chance to win this election. Oliver Howish, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show one of the very good friends of the Young IPA podcast and quiz stalwart, Dara McDonald. Welcome back. Great to be back. All right, Dara McDonald. Dara, so Terry McCran wrote in The Australian on Friday that uh, Mark McGowan has embarked on the most outrageous abuse of power we have e seen from any government in Australia in the 120 years since Federation. Now, he's talking about the WA stouch with Clive Palmer, which has now reached legislative responses. So can you break down what exactly is going on? Well, so Clive Palmer and the WA government have a, have a history, shall we say, 
of litigation between each, between each other around this mine um, called the Balmoral Iron Ore Mine. Um, and there has been a number of, deci of decisions relating to this mine previously. So there's been um, a Supreme Court case which, uh, which Clive Palmer has previously won and now um, they've gone into another round of litigation. But instead of, and the, the problem with this litigation is that it was um, released as a, you know, a supposed figure that the uh, damages that Clive Palmer would win would be up, you know, up in the $30 billion range. So instead of fighting this legal action, the, the um, parliament and particularly Mike uh, McGowan had decided that they're not going to go through the courts, they're going to go through the legislative process instead and try and bar any kind of um, legal action that could be possibly come out of this particular mine. So the first thing to start off with is the process was completely faulty. Like, you know, they had, you know, 48 hours to debate this legislation. So it was completely rushed through the parliament. Um, and for some reason got a majority. I'm not sure who's voting for this majority, but anyway. Um, and then it was whisked up in the dead of night to um, get royal assent. Um, and speaking, um, speaking on the particular bill, the Attorney General um, said that it would not, he would not pursue any kind of parliamentary inquiry and referred to the parliamentary inquiry that was proposed in order to review the legislation as namby-pamby. Um, so it was, first of all, completely rushed process there was no checks or balances to um ensure that the the legislation was um properly debated and reviewed the obvious and other problem that comes up is that is um flies completely in the face of the rule of law so it indemnifies and prevents any kind of legal action um against uh the state wa or any of the arms of the state and this also was retrospective. So every um, previous claim that Clive Palmer had is now reneged upon. So it's a retrospective um, law, basically. It's against the rule of law. It's retrospective. It's against the separation of powers because the parliament or specifically the state is trying to legislate themselves out of um, court processes. It's directly um, mentions that it, that natural justice doesn't apply in regards to Clive Palmer and his company. So there's no right to remain silent. There's no you know, due process. And obviously this sets a terrible precedent. I mean, you know, they say, oh, was, you know, the, the comment that was put forward that le legitimizes this move is that it's such an absolutely incredible situation that we have to legislate. And of course it won't create a precedent because Clive Palmer is an un unordinary individual, but, um, Obviously, this does create a precedent if they're going to, you know, uh, hunt down people and persecute people in legislation in this way. There's no saying that it won't happen to you too. So it just creates a completely, um, completely, uh, you know, a completely terrible precedent for anyone who ever wants to do business in the U uh, in WA going forward. So it's it's completely crazy. <laughs> So it, you're right, Dara, it is completely crazy. So just to summarise, the WA government is involved in a court 
case with Clive Palmer that they don't reckon they're mm. going to win, so they've introduced legislation, which means that Clive Palmer and his company can't make any claims under the legislation. Agents of the government are given legal immunity and it's retrospective, retrospectively dated. Has anything ever happened like that in the history of Australia before? Because that just seems incredible. No, it's, it's a completely... Um it's a completely different piece of legislation to what we've ever seen before, even to the extent of, um, for instance, there, there has been, well, there was a discussion about retrospective uh, war crimes, whether we can pull, you know, this is like the most harshest, um, you know, the most significant crimes possible that you can imagine, like genocide and so on. Um, and they decided, you know, that you can't impose these, these crimes retrospectively. So, if you can't import, impose war crimes retrospectively, how the hell are you supposed to impose like contractual, you know, renege on contractual o- obligations and be indemnified for that retrospectively? It's completely outrageous. Yeah, I can't say I have a whole lot of uh, sympathy in my heart for Clive Palmer or you know any love at all, but the idea that the the end of his legal battle with WA just comes through. Well, we just got together, we signed a document, and we say what we did was fine, and you can't complain. That is absolutely outrageous. Does Clive Palmer have anything he can do right now? Is because I mean he can front a one man media campaign, which I'm sure is currently in the works. <laughs> but as far as like you know, he feels entitled to some money. Is there anything he can do from this point to get some something, or at least have his day in court, so he can feel that there was like a just solution? Yeah, I mean, there there's good cause for him to um, take this piece of legislation through the courts, and particularly the high court, which undoubtedly he will do. He will take. He will. Um, we've got this odd situation where the WA are trying to get out of. Um, get out of litigation by passing a law and Clive Palmer is going to try and get out of legislation by litigation. So, and, you know, the only, the only um, casualties in this really, I mean, well, Clive Palmer is a casualty, but as, as you said, maybe there's, you know, you have limited, uh, he's not, he's not the most savory of characters, not that it should matter when it comes to the rule of law, but is, is, Ultimately, the the people of WA that will be paying for this legislation. Either way, if if Clive Palmer loses and the you know the battle goes through the courts and then he's he wins this thirty million dollar dollars worth of taxpayers' money, and then on the other hand, if um if Clive Palmer loses, you know the the precedent that is set by having legislation that completely reneges on you know principles of natural justice and the rule of law is a completely errant principle that will the People of WA will lose either way. So where's the WA uh, Liberal Party on this? You know, this is meant to be the party of private property, the rule of law. Have, yet they just signed off on this as well. What has there been any opposition to them from just from this decision? Well, there's been a few peeps, but outrageously, this passed um, passed with the majority, with you know, in the Parliament, with very little debate in 48 hours. I mean, this is where were they then if they're going to start saying, you know, peeping up now and saying, oh, maybe we should have thought more about this decision. But no, it's it's already passed. It's already legislation with royal assent. Um, there, there's been very limited debate, really. 
I would say in their defence, a few peeps is much more than many other liberal parties around Australia have done in support of our basic mm. civil liberties over the last decade. So, you know, credit to the uh, WA government for just making a few peeps. Now, Western, the, uh, the McGowan government also insists that this whole case is just a one-off. It's just us v. Clive Palmer. We're never going to use this again. And uh, the immortal quote, it is justified because Mr. Palmer is, quote, not normal. Uh, <laughs> now, again, no one's disputing that last part. But the fact that this law exists remains that someone somewhere can one day use it unless it's repealed. Maybe not this government, maybe a government in future, maybe a government 20 years from now if this law remains. So therefore, we can't say it's a once-off and we can't, take them at their word that this is like the anti-Clive Palmer law. Uh, what, what are the ramifications for other business people in WA who are looking at this going, maybe one day we'll just get told to we can't do something and uh, we, we can't even take the matter to a court? First of all, if, if not normal is the reason for uh, creating this law, I probably... There's a lot of people that are not normal, so there's not a very high bar, really. Yeah, usually um, they just give them podcasts and then they go <laughs> and invite them on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it, I mean, this particular law only applies to the situation around the mine. Um, so it does pl- apply to Clive Palmer, but it is does just send a message, you know, a, a, it, it does create a precedent um, for anyone that really wants to do business in the WA, particularly because... The whole, um, you know, the litigation that this is trying to prevent is the a finding against the state of WA that they've behaved, um, they've done something wrong to to Clive Palmer. They've um, breached their agreement, um, and if if you know if the one of the reasons that which makes Australia such an attractive place to do business is because we have the rule of law, because we have courts that mediate contracts, and the fact that the um, parliament is willing to pass legislation to get out of out of um, litigation and out of the court um, processes, then this is extremely risky. It's it shows that we're not a serious country where you know we can expect to uphold contracts and uphold laws that make it a safe place and a, and a um, viable place to do business. I guess, uh, you know, me and James used to be talking about back at the start of the footy season when West Coast were losing that the WA government would require uh, a distraction from all that. It doesn't appear to be the case at the moment. This does appear to be genuine given that the Eagles have started winning, so that makes it even more unusual. Dara, your thoughts on the Eagles' turnaround and form? (laughs) Don't ask me about anything to do with AFL. As as you can see by me being in New South Wales, I'm a a recent... uh, refugee from you know new south wales and now come back into new south wales so <laughs> well that that was actually what i wanted to ask you was that uh last time you're on the show you won the trivia uh won the quiz which should not go unremarked on uh and you told us that you're in sunny beautiful northern new south wales and you revealed to the public that you lived 10 meters from a pub which is amazing is life still treating you well up there in northern new south wales and how, how's it all going it's going pretty good the pub is still shut. They've got a new owner, so they're doing a little revamp. They always um, have to do a revamp, don't they? Yeah, I know. So the pub is still shut, but still I can leave the house and I can go for a walk on a beach, which is nice. I can, oh. you know, I can do all those sorts of things, which is, you know, it's good. It's good. It's much better than being in uh, Victoria at the minute. What's, yeah, the, what's the weather like? It's nice and sunny. It's really yeah. hot in the sun, actually. 
Yeah, there's no beach within a five kilometer radius of here, so I'm fresh out of luck. I've got a question for Pete, which is uh, usually bad manners when we're interviewing Dara, but I feel <laughs> that the situation is warranted. Now, uh, Pete, since you uh, were hit with a bombshell that Dara lives 10 meters from the pub, what yeah. was the longest amount of waking time between times that you've thought how good it would be to live where, like, that close to a pub? I just, it comes into my mind every few minutes. Let's say a few minutes. <laughs> Imagine that, 10 meters. How good is that? Is it really 10 meters or is that just a figure of speech? That's a, that's slightly a figure of speech. It's across okay. the road, okay? It's, yeah, okay? it's across the road, so... 20 meters. It could be more than two, 10 meters, probably about 20, but yeah. We might have to ask you to get the measuring tape on for ne- uh, measuring <laughs> tape out for next time you're on the show. So, Darren McDonald, Research Fellow here at, uh, at the Institute of Public Affairs. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Dara. Okay, thank you too, Oliver Hartwich and Dara McDonald. Let's bring the show home with some uh, funny stuff. And actually, this first story, Pete, isn't so much funny as sad because I think we're going to have to retire one of my favorite words in the world. Uh, so Bill Shorten this week, he was on Insiders. He was giving a sit-down talk. And um, let's just say he made a 19-year-old intern of his very proud when he said this. Or fundamentally, if I can put it in really plain English, Mr. Morrison needs to make sure that he doesn't look like he's just a simp to Donald Trump on this very important issue. Just explain simp. No, soft. We have to retire the word. If Bill Shorten uses the word, it's gone. So, there's a few things I want to unpack here with you, James. You don't, you, this is one of your favorite words you're saying. I just, I just love like any slightly innocuous statement, just going, simp. Because <laughs> people have no idea how to react. It's like the equivalent, because you and I love this one, of if someone just slightly disagrees with you, just going, shh, calm oh, yeah, down, yeah. calm down. Yeah. It's like, you know, you weren't even simping or you weren't even being uh, angry, but now that someone yeah. said that to you, you become so defensive and it's just such a beautiful <laughs> card to play against someone because it, oh, it's yeah. guaranteed to get under someone's skin. My brother started doing that to me when I was about nine. So yeah, definitely seen that one before. But so you you don't like this? I thought I I didn't mind it. I was sort of like, I was happy with it. I think words like simp and uh, you know uh, maybe wap for our younger listeners out there, uh, they will be used until they cotton on to people that should not use these words. And I would say that uh, the job title of former leader of the Australian Labor Party would be one of the job titles that can't use those words. Yeah, and he, he wants to be Prime Minister as well. So he, potentially a future Prime Minister has used the word simp and you could see when he was saying it just before he said it, this little smirk, he's like, I'm going to get in the paper for this. Uh, and he said that, uh, yeah, ScoMo was a simp to Donald Trump or needs to make sure that he's not. Uh, now, this is another thing I want to raise. Bill Shorten also backed gas over the weekend, saying we need more gas if we're going to have a manufacturing sector. So I'd say simp. Bill's had a good week. See, <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> He's a simp to ScoMo. Even stuff I like, agree with, it's good. <laughs> what a simp. He is a simp to conventional energy. He's a simp to the, you know, the coal, the coal lobby and the gas lobby. Um, I reckon he's had a good week. Good week. I liked right. it. I will say uh, this. At least it's the proper use of that word, which must have been some nervous moments for him. Just going like, what if this is not the right context in which to use it? So yeah. there's some level of uh, 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 credit we should give him for that. Yeah, it's better than when Kevin Rudd mangled the sauce bottle thing. Yeah, sauce that's for bottle. Sure. Don't suck the sauce bottle too hard or whatever he said. Uh, and it's better than being... So ScoMo, he said, as you would have heard, that ScoMo's being a skimp to Donald Trump. It's better than being a simp to Xi Jinping, which is, of course, what Daniel Andrews does. That oh, is political. A... <laughs> Took it in a political <laughs> direction. That was a hmm moment. <laughs> all right, what are we, do? Are we moving on? Uh, we should. Uh, all right, so... 
Donald Trump's brother uh, passed away this week. So this is how the Washington Post chose to lead their obituary. Robert Trump, younger brother of President Trump, who filed lawsuit against Nice, dies at 71. Now, Peter, this is how the same paper, Washington Post, decided to start their obituary for Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of Islamic State. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, dies at 48. Sorry. (laughs) Robert Trump gets mentioned that he sued his niece, and Baghdadi gets mentioned as an austere religious scholar. That's where the Washington Post is at at the moment. Oh, I can't understand why people are turning off from mainstream media. But the the at least they've they've chosen two. They've missed the fact. They've missed the point in both of them, haven't they? You know what I mean? They've they've, they've stuffed that up by missing the point both times. Like he filed a, a lawsuit against his niece is such a random fact to yeah. include. It's like you know once did his taxes, uh, and then you know. Austere religious scholar. I mean, Baghdadi probably was an austere religious scholar, but that's just not quite the point. Doesn't Washington quite capture po- the essence of the man. It's not the thing, is it? It's not the thing. Uh, and Washington Post have form on this, James. They said in February this year, it's time to give the elites a bigger say in choosing the president. And then they changed that to uh, something about primaries. So, oh yeah, <laughs> they, they changed this after about an hour as well, by the way. So they've got a they've got a bit of a habit of saying the thing they you know think and then changing it quickly. They changed the Baghdadi one as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, but these these people are really serious. Classic Simpson, am I right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. Big That's time Simpson. Okay, we'll move on uh, to the last <laughs> article that we want to talk about, which is Robert Very D'Angelo, serious. the author of White Fragility, the uh, book that tells you how not to be a racist, has a pretty sick new gig lined up. She is going to be charging twenty thousand dollars to the University of Connecticut to spend uh, to send four dozen top administrators to a three-day workshop where they will study anti-racism under D'Angelo's tutelage. Hmm. Pete, she's just got the best job in the world. I think she has got a great job. Like She's on a sensational wicket. And they said, I'm further reading in that article, 20 grand, right? Also, 2,000 grand, 2,000 grand, two grand for um, travel and hotel and no phone calls included as part of the contract if they have to call her to clarify anything or something like that. 320 bucks an hour. Incredible. So she's doing well. I think we can complain about this, James, or we can get even. All right? This, we could easily do something like this. We could just say, look, we were racist and sexist, misogynist, uh, and the reason we like that is not because of ourselves. It's because society pointed us in that direction. Uh, we're going to run some seminars, give us some sweet, sweet coin. Like, you know, we can complain about this as much as we want, or we can fill our boots. No, I'm, I'm with you. So I've literally thought we can deliver at half the price, double the buck, because there's two of us. We can yeah. charge $10,000 for these workshops. Mm. Uh, I reckon I'm the good cop and you're the bad cop. I'm sort of like, you know, I, I'll build people up and say, you know, you come in and you say, all right, here's where you've all stuffed up because you can be quite mm. the intimidating force when you get angry. So you just, <laughs> you know, I gather them all in a room. I gather the 12 administrators. You immediately kick down a door like off its hinges. It goes flying and you're like, right. Yeah. Here's where you've stuffed up. And you spent okay, three yeah. hours screaming at them. Then you leave. And then I spend two days just going like, okay, here are the building blocks. Yeah. And then we, we walk off 5K each. I reckon it's 50 50 split. I don't mind. I don't mind it. I reckon we can do it. And um, I don't see, you know, I'm happy to be the bad cop. I feel like that's yep. less work based on what you've just described to me. I think so. Uh, I think you're the hammer and I'm the sickle in this It's always easier to tear things down and build things up. Yep. Let's be honest. Uh, I'm in. Let's do it. Saul can, um, Saul can film it. <laughs> yeah. Saul, so there's a role for Saul in there guy. somewhere. Yeah, we'll need to figure out like the cost because I've got it as 5K each and oh, Saul yeah, drives yeah. a hard bargain. He's an absolute yeah. weapon at the negotiation table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, let's do it. Let's do it. 
All right, done. All right, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Oliver Hartwich and Dara McDonald for those interviews. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. If you are listening through Apple Podcasts, make sure you're leaving us that review. If you have friends and family who'd like the show, we're available on all podcast platforms, so Spotify, YouTube, uh, Pocket Casts, Google Play, you name it, we're there. So oh, they can download the show is. and listen. Um, make sure you're checking out the other podcasts we've got going on over here. So we've got the Looking Forward podcast every week. We've got Viral Banter every fortnight. Really good discussion last week. We have uh, stuff you can go back in the chamber and look at. We've got Five Red Books with Dr. Bella DeBerry and Greg Sheridan. We've got a few episodes on the way, but you can go back and listen to Greg Sheridan talk about his five favorite books. You've got Australia's Future but with John Roskam and Tony Abbott talking about the Australian way of life, how we can protect it through coronavirus. And you can go right back in the vault and go to the Great Books of Literature, which is uh, John Roskam and Dad talking about their 10 favorite books. So, I mean, you know, I know the rest of Australia is like kind of back to normal-ish, but here in Victoria... We've certainly got nothing to do but sit around and read, so get the reading list sorted with uh, those couple of podcasts. Did I miss any? I don't think I did. The Heretic. Not my knowledge. If you want to listen to the backstory of uh, the Peter Ridge case, then download The Heretic. Uh, yeah, cool. See you guys next week. Become a member of the IPA. Good. Good save. See you guys next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>